Today, you've joined hundreds of established and emerging writers who are discovering ways to reach their writing goals and have fun by being more curious, creative, and productive. You're listening to Ann Croker, Writing Coach. This is episode 190, an interview with author and literary agent Jeff Herman. Today, I'm chatting with author and literary agent Jeff Herman. Jeff's literary agency has ushered nearly 1,000 books into print. He's the co-author of the acclaimed Write the Perfect Book proposal and is often featured as an expert in print and broadcast media. Jeff provides us with insider insight that will give you hope that it's possible to see your words in print. When you get a chance, check out his amazing resource, Jeff Herman's Guide to Book Publishers, Editors, and Literary Agents, 28th edition. But right now, let's dive straight into my conversation with Jeff. Jeff, thank you for being here on my show. It's great to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So one of the reasons that I'm having you on is you have just come out with the 28th edition of Jeff Herman's Guide to Book Publishers, Editors, and Literary Agents. Is this something that you have to keep up with on a regular basis from year to year? Uh, we used to do it every year, and uh, but the uh, circumstances have changed. Uh, when I first started doing it, it was really the first and only reference that had all of this information in one place. And this, of course, was pre-internet. Uh, and this kind of information was very difficult to come about, all these details about the agents and all the details about the editors, who, and starting with who they even were. Uh, but now with, uh, of course, the uh, internet and the availability of information, we have found that we can do it every other year. Okay, yeah. Well, it's a fabulous resource. I am so impressed. You, you. Yeah, you are. You provide not just the listings to these uh, these professionals in the publishing industry, publishers, editors, agents, but you also provide some really useful, practical resources for writers. And so, if they grab this, it's like a, a seminar in how to really establish yourself as a writer, how to understand the industry. I really, really. Um, would urge people, writers who really don't understand how it works, grab this book because you're going to tell them. Well, thank you. And my uh, vision for it has always been to tell people what they probably or just may not be hearing uh, yeah. otherwise, because uh, let's face it, if you want to publish a book, uh, most likely you're clueless about how to go about that. And so I tried with this book to give people a little bit more of an edge so that they know what they're dealing with. That is, it really is a gift because if you don't know what's going on, you're not in New York, uh, you know, schmoozing with people. You don't, you just don't talk this talk. Yeah, you can dig around the internet, but I think what you've done is you have consolidated it into one place so we can just walk, you can walk us through it. And so, yeah, you have, I was just looking at it. You have really great, uh, elements here. You advise readers on how to be a good client and how to avoid being a, a, a client that uh, is going to wreak havoc on the agency. And you talk about the publishing process beginning to end. And your your wife even contributed one on the writer's journey, the path of the spiritual writer. So there's just a variety of input here. 
One of the things that I was looking at it before we, we were going to get on the phone here, and, and one of the sections is the tribulations of the unknown writer and possible remedies. And then you have this section that's got a subheading, ways to be seen in a crowd. And this is what I think writers who are just, you know, I'm sitting here in the Midwest. I, I'm not, New York is not accessible to me. And I could go to writing um, events and maybe meet some agents there. But otherwise, I and many of the people who are listening are probably feeling like, how can I get known? I really love this. Can you give us a few tips here on the podcast for how we can begin to be known? Okay. The first myth is that just because you're in New York or the vicinity of New York, that you have a crucial advantage over someone from Indiana or Alaska. Uh, it, it's really not true. Uh, the, the walls that publishing creates obstruct everybody equally. It's not just a matter of geography. It, it's really just a matter of access. Uh, and those walls are established for a very good reason. It's because for everybody who gets published there, uh, in a given minute, uh, traditionally, there's probably thousands and thousands of people who are also trying to get that one spot at any given moment. So you would sort of have a giant food riot if these obstructions <laughs> didn't exist, if everyone was just swarming into the publishing office buildings, throwing raw manuscripts <laughs> at everybody. <laughs> so, and now with, of course, with digital communications, which to a great extent has displaced hard copy and to a certain extent has even displaced telephones and in-person communications. Uh, everybody really has, I think that has done, done a lot to equalize the playing field. Uh, so I don't think geography is a disadvantage or an advantage. The, the thing you have to understand is that yes, it is a huge number of game. Uh, for every person who wants to get published, there are thousands and thousands who want to. And what I've discovered when I first came into this business 30 odd years ago, is that it wasn't necessarily the best writers who were getting published. And very often the best writers weren't getting published. And very often more mediocre writers were often getting published while the best ones weren't. And what I discovered is that there's ways to be a great writer and there's ways to be great at getting yourself published. And being a great writer is one of the tools, but it's not the only tool. There are ways you can compensate for not being a great writer. And there are ways you can decompensate, even if you are a great writer, which will, in effect, lock you out. Can you say more about that? That sounds <laughs> yes. like you've got a secret for us. <laughs> well, it's really, you start with the point of view of the people you're trying to sell to, okay? And the, the, the agents and the editors, let's be frank, they don't really care about you. I mean, and you probably don't really care about them except for the fact that they can do something for you and the fact that you can maybe do something for them is the extent that they may care about you. So it's all, you know, I, I, to get down to the baseline, it's really a question of functions and utility and profitability. So the editors do not want to spend their day rifling through thousands of unagented unsolicited submissions, which they call slush, which is very flattering. <laughs> Uh, so they have to create obstacles. So one of the uh, arbitrary obstacles they create is they say, it doesn't matter if you're unagent. Uh, if you are unagent, 
or unsolicited, don't even write to us. Okay, we don't want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. You have to go to an agent. Uh, unsolicited meaning they didn't invite you and an agent did just like it sounds. It means you don't have an agent. Now, that's not a hard pass rule, okay? There's lots of ways to break that. But the agents become crucial because they are the ones that have the access to the editors. So what's happening is a lot of great writers right there are losing because they're not figuring out how to get access. They're not, it doesn't matter how good their book is if they're not getting it read by someone who's qualified to make a, a qualitative decision. And there's nobody in the publishing house who's doing real screening unless it comes in through an agent. So what you have to do is think about how you can break through the crowd and be noticed. So the first thing to do is decide, well, I guess I should get an agent. So the first, the, after that, you need to select agents, a pool of agents that actually represent the kind of book you're writing. If you're a romance writer, it doesn't make any sense for you to pitch agents that clearly never represent romance because your rejection rate will be 100% because you're pitching agents who don't represent romance. Right. So I'm just going to use that as an example. So what you need to do is, well, how do I find romance agents? Well, of course, there's Jeff Herman's guy, but that's not the only way. <laughs> yes. uh, that would be unfair to say that's the only way. You can go to the bookstore or your own bookshelf and look at recently published romance novels, different kinds, and see if the agent has been acknowledged by the author and make a list of who these people are. And they're all available. Every agency now has a website. Uh, so that's the first way to find who the agents are. The other way is to network with writers who are, are in your category, category, who are already published and have an agent and get to know them at least professionally, if you can, by email or by telephone or in person if there's an organization uh, near you for romance writers or other kinds of writers and see if you can use their name to get access to their agent or at least get the name and location of the agent. Uh, the next step is to pitch the agent. Now the agent in most cases will not want to get a raw manuscript. First, they will want to probably get what's known as a query letter, which is really a pitch letter. Uh, and maybe a couple of chapters, a synopsis or a book proposal. They will, uh, the agent will use the pitch letter to determine whether or not they have any more interest in your project. So you need to start out this pitch letter in a way that is going to grab attention and make that agent feel that they need to pay more attention to you. Now, on, an, on average, every agent is rejecting 98% of the submissions he or she receives. So they're automatically going to assume when they get your pitch, your query, that you're one of the 98% because that's the odds. Sure. So what they need to do is figure out, see if you may be one of those 2%. Now, whatever every agent does because of the volume of these letters that are coming in, agents are looking for a reason to stop reading and go to the next one, next, next, next. That's mm -hmm. considered productivity, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if they if they can't get it the first few paragraphs, they're gonna decide they're never gonna get it. Why waste more time? Yeah. Even though everything might be brilliant once they get there. Now, there's different ways to grab attention. 
And some of these sound crass, but I guarantee you they work. First of all, always make sure you personalize the communication to the, the particular agent. Uh, also, if you just go to their website, they'll probably say something like submissions, you know, at or queries at. Uh, go beyond that and see if you can actually get the personal email of the agents. Uh, it doesn't mean it won't get looked at if it goes to queries dot, but it's more likely to get looked at if it actually goes into the personal box for the agent. How do you get that? Well, if it's not listed in my book or on their website or somewhere else, you can just call them and ask, just say, you know, what's the personal email address? Oh, wow. Not personal, but business email address, but I have to send them something. Yeah. And very often the person will answer the phone uh, and, or you may get to voicemail and just say, you know, I need this information. Don't say it's because I'm a writer and I want to send him or her. You don't lie, but you don't have to say more than you need to say. The next thing you do is when you send this personalized uh, pitch, and you can also send it hard copy, by the way. You know, it's okay to do both. Back yourself up. Mm. Uh, is say something very flattering and personal about that agent. If I get something, I, I get 180 queries uh, every couple of days. So the ones that say, you know, I just think you're a great agent. That's the first line, or I love your book, or I really love the books you've represented because they went on my website or, or whatever. Uh, gee, I have to start, that's so flattering. I have to start paying attention because my, I'm so vain, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just you like don't roll else. your You don't just roll your eyes and say, oh, brother, they're just flattering me. You actually respond. On some level, I yeah, do that. Maybe we're but, all human. That's a nice reminder that agents are human. But I like to also be affirmed, same as the writer does, same as right. everyone does. Okay, yeah, yeah. so that's your, you don't have to open that way. I'm just saying that's no, one that's possible good. way because it, it crystallizes attention. Mm -hmm. uh, the next way to open, or at least to go into in the next paragraph, is it's a, a waste of time and space to say something very business-like, like I am writing to you to solicit your uh, interest in reading my nonfiction, but you know, that that's all just a business letter that, you know, that's something you would send to an account. <laughs> what you really want to do is start out with something that's really compelling in that first paragraph. Take an excerpt from your story, take some of the dialogue out of your story, take some of uh, an action scene, or if it's nonfiction, uh, give something about uh, that that's very attracting about your nonfiction project right in there. Even if it's a very boring nonfiction, like how to do your own taxes, there's still something you can say right in there in that first paragraph, which at least crystallizes for the agent what your book is. Because you don't want the, the agent to have to say after the first two paragraphs, what is this guy trying to pitch to me? What is this woman trying to pitch to me? So Jeff, would this be more of a, a hook without the without revealing what it's about, or is it more of a a, a, a style stylistic summary of of sorts? Well, you want both. You you need it to be clear what it is, and you also need to show something exciting about okay. it, or at least something that keeps the eyes and the brain focused to the page. Yeah, How it stands do you out. Do that? Yeah, okay. how do you mm -hmm. do that so that they don't just click next, next, mm -hmm. next? Mm -hmm. Because their agents and editors also are very happy to keep pressing 
the next button. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I interrupted your flow here. Yours yeah. is great. You've got this step-by-step. So now don't waste time with the business-sounding stuff. Give them something that entices, keeps them, keeps them there with you. What's next? Yeah. So then, uh, you know, if, if let's say you have really good social uh, media connections, engagement, you, you would put that like in one of the paragraphs. Uh, let's say you you know a lot of interesting you know celebrity type people who have promised to give you an endorsement or at least uh, put out a, a big blurb about you in the book when it comes out through their own social media. Uh, that's something you would put in. If you do uh, a lot of uh, speaking or presenting, you know, as a nonfiction writer, uh, this is all called platform. Uh, that's also something you would put in because the agents and the editors are looking for writers who do not live under rocks, but they're looking for writers who in turn can be visible and can also use their own resources to enhance that visibility, whether it be person to person or through social media. So those kinds of qualities need to be broadcast in this letter. Uh, if you've had other books published, say so. What you want to avoid doing, and I get a lot of letters, the very first paragraph will be something like, I've been trying to get published for 10 years and I have been unable to. All right, that's a really negative way to start. I mean, why should I have any confidence in you? And that may very well be true that you've been trying for 10 years. But actually, it's not unusual necessarily that you've been getting a lot of rejections and, and might still become a very successful author. That happens, okay? There's no, you know, th that happens more than you might think. But you don't open the letter <laughs> that way. Uh, you don't open the letter by rambling, uh, almost like it's a, a blog about your personal life or a personal diary, because that's a time suck, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're not that interested, <laughs> unless it's really relevant to mm -hmm. the book. We're really not that interested. Uh, so you really got to get to the point. The other kind of mistake I see with these letters is you right away can see that the person has a very edgy attitude and that they're going to be difficult to work with. And what comes through almost from the first paragraph is that they resent the fact that it somehow isn't self-evident that they are amazing. Uh, and they may be amazing. Actually, I think everybody's amazing but they may be amazing in the context that they have a great book. But if the very first paragraph is showing this uh, ant uh, antipathy about having to go through this very uh, hum you know, humiliating and uh, humble process of trying to get people to see them. And mm -hmm. if you sense that resentment, then right away you, you get, you know, that's a clue that this might be a very difficult person to work with because they're constantly going to have grievances. And, and that's somebody that you, you prefer not to work with unless they can really prove that they're going to pay the rent for you through their product. Okay. Mm. Then you put up with those aspects. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's honest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything uh, else? Well, just make sure you have really, you know, solid, clean stuff. You should have your, if it's fiction, you're pro and you've never been published before, uh, commercially, traditionally published, you'll probably have to have the whole manuscript ready to show. 
okay? If uh, you're a nonfiction writer, you don't have to have the whole manuscript, most likely, unless you do need what's known as a really good solid book proposal, and there's ways to write those. There's a protocol for that, and maybe one sample chapter. Yes. And you have an excellent resource. You're being very humble about that, but that's how I first came upon you and got to know you a little bit. It was through your book on how to uh, write, let's see, write the perfect write the, book proposal. Write the perfect book proposal. It's available on Amazon. And yeah. uh, yes, that has excellent uh, sample proposals with critiques that actually did go on to get published. I thought that was one of the most valuable aspects of the book, although you do walk people through each section that's expected in a book proposal. So well done on that too. And I would actually recommend that myself to anybody to grab because you do, you help again, just as you do with this book, you, you walk us through. And as you just done now, you've walked us through how to put together a query. Are there any pieces that you left out there? Where... Yeah. Uh, you should not go one agent at a time because okay. every mm-hmm. agents, even as publishing has become very corporate, and uh, modeled in a very uh, Fortune 100 kind of way over the years. Uh, but it was much different 25 years ago when mm-hmm. I was first coming into this business. Mom and pops were, were uh, dominated uh, book publishing. Uh, mm. That's no longer the case. So, you, but the agents are still mom and pop entrepreneurs and each agency has its own sort of protocol. There are certain industry standards, best practices, but everyone has, every agency has its own personality. So you may write to one agent and that agent may have a really bad flu for the next few weeks and is going to get backed up and will never be able to get back to you in a timely fashion. Okay. And here you are holding yourself hostage because the agent's not holding you hostage. The agent hasn't made any guarantees about when they're going to get back to you. The agent doesn't even know you. They owe you nothing. They're not, they're not representing you. So there is no obligation for any particular agent to ever get back to you. You may think, oh, well, that's a lack of courtesy. And you may be right, but so what? Uh, <laughs> where's that going to get you? So I tell people to write to anywhere from five to 10 agents at a time. That way you're, you're increasing the odds that a couple of them at least are going to get back to you one way or another in a timely fashion. Some of them may never get back to you. You're just going to have to accept that. Uh, and then I say not to, even if you found that there are 50 eligible agents for your romance novel, I say don't go to all 50 at the same time. Because if you're being uh, rejected from the first 10, this will give you an opportunity, what I call to evolve yourself. You can go back and look at your pitch letter and look at the other materials that you've been presenting and see maybe why. It ha- you know, you, you will probably find things you can do to upgrade the way you are presenting yourself. Now, you have to remember this is a hard copy business. There's really nothing you can say over the phone or even in person unless the, the agent and ultimately the editor feels that you can write well enough, that you can editorially deliver. Now, there's exceptions to that. If you're going to be using a ghostwriter and you're, it's just you doing the promotion, you know, that's fine too. Uh, but that's sort of an exception. So you just need to understand it's hard copy and that's how you're going to get your foot in the door. 
with five to 10 at a time, adjusting, evolving, and then another batch of five to 10? Yeah, yeah, go ahead and do the next five to 10 after you feel that you've made it as good as you can this, the next round, go ahead and do it. Now go into this knowing that you may get 100% rejection rate, okay? And that doesn't mean that you're not publishable. It just means it's a tough business. So mm -hmm. what's the next step? Well, I tell people then, okay, then never mind the agent, go directly to the publisher. Even though the publisher wants you to go to the agent and even says, if you're unagented, I won't read you. Here's the secret. That's not true. What? <laughs> a lot of people get published without using agents, simply mostly because they couldn't get an agent or they didn't know that they needed an agent. So what do they do? Do they just send it to editorial department, Simon & Schuster, or romance editor, Simon & Schuster? No, of course not. That'll get thrown out what, or deleted. No, what you have to do then is get the names of the eligible editors who happen to, uh, who acquire books in the romance sector. How do you do that? Again, there's Jeff Herman's guide, because mm -hmm. I give you the names and their specialties. Again, you go to the bookstore or your own bookshelf, and you look to see who the writers have acknowledged as their editor. And that's how you get the names. And then you have to, uh, you can probably get their email address by going on the publisher's website mm -hmm. and looking it up, or you can get it simply by trying to get an operator on the phone and not mm -hmm. telling him or her why you need it. Just say, I need, I need to send an email to blah, blah, blah. And they'll probably give the address. Uh, you can also, it's worth joining an organiz uh, a newsletter called Publishers Marketplace, mm -hmm. publishersmarketplace.com. Because for $25 a month, uh, and you don't have to stay a member forever, you can put in uh, something called romance. And, you, and, all, and what will come up is all the agents, whoever represented a romance novel over the past 10 years who have reported it, publishers and marketplace. You have to report it, and most do. Uh, and you'll also get the listings of all the editors at traditional houses who have acquired Rome yeah. with their email address. So that's another great way to get the database. And once you have the database of the publishers, of the editors, you follow the same process you did with the agent. If the uh, editor gets a hard copy submission that's addressed to them, or an email that's addressed to their box, it comes to them, okay? Most likely they're going to open it. And then they may actually get absorbed into the reading of it. One thing leads to another. I do hear from authors every year, a few, many dozens that come back to me, and that's just the ones that are telling me that they couldn't get an agent, but they were able to get access on their own by following these uh, tips to get access to an editor. And ultimately the editor did pay attention and liked what they saw and it led to a book deal. Wow, I have never heard, I've never heard anybody say that, Jeff. This is great. Yes, they, they, the rules are not really true. They're really preferences. The mm -hmm. walls were porous, if that's mm -hmm. the right word. Uh, these walls do, are, are not metal plated. They have, mm -hmm. it's more like Swiss cheese. <laughs> it's a big illusion that you can't get through these walls. Wow. And the illusion is very useful for agents and editors, okay? It works for us. 
but it doesn't work for you, the writer. And ultimately it doesn't work for the editors or agents because it does in effect lock out a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. But that's why you need to be very tenacious and not let the agents or the editors individually or collectively tell you that you are not publishable because mm -hmm. they don't know. They mm -hmm. think that they know, they may know what's right for them, but nobody can speak for the industry as a whole. There are projects I've rejected that I didn't think were very good and they went on to do very well. And I'm happy to admit that. And I'm glad that I was wrong. It, it gave me, and I'm glad I found out that I was wrong because it gave, uh, we all need these, these humiliating uh, experiences in order to grow at what we do. And you as a writer need the humiliation of rejection and dismissal in order to grow at what you do. That's good. How can we, how can we, um, I think sometimes we want to know that an objective outside person says, you are a good writer and I want this project. And there's something really affirming and, and validating in that. So how can we, how are we kidding ourselves when we, re, when we reject the rejection and try this just going straight to the publisher thing? Are, what if we're fooling ourselves? What if we really don't have something that's marketable? Uh, so what? <laughs> if, it's <laughs> Might as well best, try. if it's the best you can bring it, you know, if it's, it's at the best you can bring it and you enjoy bringing it, it may not be commercially publishable. It really may not be. So what? You know, you can, <laughs> you can still go to Smashwords or Create Space or one of the, uh, you know, and for very, very little money, less than $100, even less than $50, whatever, you can put it, you can upload it to any of these platforms and it's there, okay? It now lives. It's a living, breathing book on any of these platforms. It can be downloaded as an ebook. It can be downloaded as a print on demand and shipped to somebody. Now, of course, 95% of the self-published books only sell five copies a year, 95% mm -hmm. of them, okay? And that's because nobody is finding, the, knows that the book exists. But there's another 5% that are selling very, very well, probably competing with traditionally published books, okay? Even though they're self-published, especially in certain categories, such as romance, uh, women's fiction, uh, women's mysteries. The, for some reason, these categories are competing with traditional publishing, even as a self-published domain, uh, because there's so many there's so many more marketing, social media marketing opportunities available for these fiction categories, which a savvy writer will figure out. If you can't just be a good writer, you need to be really good at making people know that your book exists and making them feel that they want, that they must buy it. And of course it's called engagement. And of course it has to be the right people. You may get, you may engage me, but I'm never going to buy a romance novel. Okay. So it doesn't matter that you've engaged. <laughs> you need to engage right. the correct people. Yeah. And that ties back into platform and just your author brand and being known. And like you said, being savvy that even what, so what you've described here is this pivot from a traditional publishing path to the, to the self-publishing. And you can step outside of the New York matrix. Uh, an example yeah. I give, which is some ways is a little dated. It was 30 years ago when I was a young age and I was representing a book called uh, chicken soup for the soul. Mm. 
You may have heard. At the yeah. time, the authors were relatively obscure. Uh, they had big speaking uh, careers and so on. And they had an idea for that book. And we got about 30 rejections out of New York at the time. We would get rejection letters saying things that's too bad that these writers don't want to do something that's more serious. You know, too bad they want to write something that's so trite. So, mm. Because the New York publishing infrastructure really only knew how to publish and market for the elite of the readers, mm. uh, the people who read The New Yorker, not People Magazine, not Us Magazine, but The New Yorker, and uh, or Harper's, or The Atlantic. Uh, that's only a fraction of actual readers. So what happened was the book ended up with a relatively obscure independent publisher in South Florida who knew how, who had a successful catalog marketing to people outside the New York matrix. And the author, uh, it was offered a deal for almost a zero advance. So it was a traditional royalty deal. And of course the authors went and created their own marketing infrastructure and the book became one of the best selling book series in history, even though nobody in New York would have wanted it at the time and probably wouldn't want it again now if it was done all over again. And it hadn't, if we were able to, you know, if it hadn't had the success and, you know, if we tried to pitch it all over again now, I think it would still get universally rejected by hmm. the New York houses wow. because it's not their mindset. So be willing to go outside the New York culture and look for independent traditional publishers outside. That's, that's great advice. And just to confirm, you that book was agented by you, right? The, yes, the first, uh, the first uh, couple of ones were, and some other books by the authors. And then, uh, you know, they went on to do, uh, they sold the company, the, the, you know, a lot of things happened yeah. in the interim. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I was there at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. So in other words, they didn't do it all by themselves. They did have you, you know, guiding them, walking them through the process. Even yes. when you went outside New York, that's in fact, if, if I may, I'd like to ask you, I, it's it's I don't know which direction to go to talk about self-publishing or talk about more about agents. But I think people are so interested in agents and you're an agent. And so I'd like to kind of like swing back around to that work and maybe explain to people who really this is a little bit new to them. I think a lot of my listeners understand the basics, but some don't. So why don't you explain just how agenting even works from, sure. from the perspective of that relationship and the business part? What do they do? Okay, a, an agent, assuming he or she's really an agent, a legitimate agent, only works on a commission, a 15% commission. The only way the agent makes a living as an agent is they find product books that they in turn can sell to the publishers. The agent negotiates the advance, negotiates the royalties, whatever money that book makes uh, with the publisher from the advance and then the subsequent royalties and rights income, the agent gets a 15% commission. Now, the agent is self-employed. The agent does not actually, the agent represents the writer, but doesn't work for the writer in the same way a lawyer does. Uh, the agent also, you have to understand, sort of represents the publisher because they're bringing product that is going to make that publisher money. Now, an agent has to be very selective about what they represent because if they do not present product that is actually eligible for publication, qualitatively and marketing speaking, then 
that agent will lose his or her access because they're no better than the slush pile as far as the publishers are concerned. That person cannot sustain themselves as an agent. So the agent has to be very selective. So mm -hmm. the average agent is rejecting about 98%. However, none of us are in lockstep. First of all, we all have different specialties. My rejection rate for romance is close to 100%, okay? <laughs> uh, it may actually be 100%, even, but that's not, and that's because I stopped reading in the first sentence. Oh, it's a romance. It's like mm -hmm. the person shouldn't even be sending that to me. There, so, and that adds into my 98 percentile. Whereas if it's a book uh, on, on you know, self-help, uh, some self-help subject or true crime, uh, something like that, my rejection rate now is down to probably 75%, okay, from that 98%, because those are categories I'm more comfortable with. Uh, the agent's job, I don't think it's all that glamorous. It's stimulating. I mean, you have to like ideas. You have to like the written word. You have to like language and the way it's expressed. You have to like reading stuff. You have to know how to read it so that you can read it fast and get it when you have to. It's not pleasure reading. You don't get to, only it's rare that you actually get to like do it as something you could do on a chase lounge. That's your personal time. <laughs> this is different kind of reading. This is yeah. reading for business. There's, I'll be very honest with you. And as I've told my clients, there's a lot of books that I will agent very happily that I would very probably not read on my own time. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't matter. That's my personal time. What I'm doing uh, as a business person is using my aptitude and my connections to place product with publishers. And, to, and, and that's all I need to do. It doesn't mean that I want to t go home at the end of the day and like just read this stuff page to page. Yeah. Do you, I do you have a, a set of publishers that you have close relationships with and then you don't really venture out much beyond that? Uh, well, the industry, because it has become so contracted, whereas there used to be maybe uh, at least 50 different entities uh, 25 years ago, most of which were independents. Today, you have what's known as the big five. Mm -hmm. Now, the big five are actually owned by Fortune 100 media companies. And for these media companies, the book publishing assets are probably less than 1% of their revenue, if you can imagine that. So even though Simon & Schuster's revenue might be $1 billion a year, that's really only a fraction of what Viacom, and they're owned by Viacom CBS, Simon & Schuster. So that's only a fraction. Viacom makes movies, feature films, they own cable channels, they own publications. CBS, of course, is a big broadcast network. So book publishing is, is not the most important thing to them, but they wanted it there as part of their own catalog of media assets. So a lot of the, what were mom and pop companies 50, 25 years ago have now been consolidated into these big five. And as a result, you only have maybe about two dozen really uh, vibrant, large seven figure uh, privately owned uh, independent publishing companies. So as a result, there's not a whole lot of places that we can go. Now, within one of these big five, they have many divisions, okay, many programs, uh, some of which really overlap and compete with each other. 
It's kind of like how General Motors used to have a dozen different car brands, many of which could easily be trying to sell to the same customer and tended to have their own dealerships. Uh, and the reason for that is it's really a vestige of when these imprints, as they're called, like Scribner's at Simon & Schuster or Knopf at Random House, when these were mom and pop companies going back 25 years. So they've tried to sort of keep the individual culture uh, alive, but it, it's, it's difficult to do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I try not to be locked in with anyone, yeah. but uh, there's not as much of a feel to play as there used to be. And yeah. that's frustrating. Yes. Yes, I'm sure it is for you and, and ultimately for the writer who's trying to get in. And, uh, and... The kind of books that get published have also changed. Uh, as the industry has become more consolidated, there's much less risk taking. And mm. the model is they, they're not willing to publish as many low margin, what I would call low margin books, which is the, the yeah. mid list. The independent, when it was a more independently driven business, publishers were very happy to acquire many books, many books that would sell on the average 10,000 copies a year. And if they acquired hundreds of the, 100 of those a year, that were each going to average about 10,000 copies a year, they were very happy with that. That was a good model for them. They were able to sustain themselves and show a profit. But the corporate houses do not have that kind of mentality or that kind of patience. That what They consider that to be nickel and dime publishing, which I think is very insulting. And they've never actually used that term, but that's really what it's coming down to. They have to see the book as being a gate crasher, a big, a big book yeah. uh, right out of the gate. They're not looking for books that are going to be, that are going to become backlist success stories. They're looking for frontlist success stories. And that has also changed the nature of publishing. Yeah. Do you see indie publishers, independent publishers taking more risks? Yes. Uh, well, they're taking the same risks. And yeah. the reason is, you see, they can't really compete for the big ticket books. I mean, I don't think there's any independent publisher now or before that could pay someone like Hillary Clinton $20 million to publish her book. Okay, only a Fortune 500 company could find that kind of capitalization. Uh, so the indies are still paying very modest advances, and that's the, the role that they're, that they're filling in. Uh, they're still publishing mid-list books that don't fit the modeling for most of the Fortune 500 mm -hmm. uh, owned mm -hmm. companies. Now that doesn't mean because they're paying a low advance that the book is not going to do well. Books, uh, that's just the money that goes up front that mm -hmm. you never return. You may only get a five, I mean, I have lots of books, a lot of books that I sold 30 years ago for five or $10,000 up front that have gone on to earn maybe $500,000 mm -hmm. in that 30 years. They may not have gotten that five hundred thousand up front, but the book is still in print and still selling, still sending these authors residuals of several thousand dollars a year for a book that they wrote thirty years ago. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, with independent publishers. So, you know, the models are are don't, don't just look at the upfront money. It's not a step down to go to yeah. an. It might actually be a step up in the long run. Right. So don't don't think the advance is everything and understand that that advance is an advance on those royalties to be made later rather right. than. Yeah. 
So tell me a little bit, and maybe we'll have to wrap this up here, but maybe we can end on talking about the actual relationship itself. Tell me what you love about working with authors and how we can just be a dream, a dream client for you. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because a dream client sounds very, uh, almost like a demanding situation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I tend to have boundaries uh, in that, uh, you know, I don't really, I, I don't want it to become socially inappropriate. You know, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes I've become friends, personal friends with people I'm working with, but that happened through a natural process and that we probably just would have become friends anyway if we had met each other. Yeah. Uh, so and it it's been an work. issue. It, there's been inappropriate behavior too. So I appreciate that that professional distance. As uh, well. Yeah, that's always a risk too, you know, and uh, especially something that people have become more conscious of uh, in recent years. But that's always been, you know, a possibility out there that people had to be mindful about. Uh, but what I enjoy is working with the writer to make them as good as they can be and helping them to achieve their goals. I, I like to see the results of our good work together. I like to see that the book gets acquired by a publisher, that it gets published and that it sells copies and, and all the benefits that accrue to the author. I really feel then that I've, you know, I'm serving a purpose by helping the writer and the publisher and the reader uh, get all these beneficial results. And that's what I consider to be the dream situation where we're just really all working together as a well-oiled machine. That's good. I think maybe I'm picturing the annoying frequency of uh, emails where an anxious author is peppering well, their agent with notes okay. and help me understand what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, uh, if uh, an agent or an editor, if they see that that's going to be a non-containable problem, that's a strike against the writer. Mm -hmm. uh, if they see, now again, you know, like there are certain, I'm not going to mention names, there are certain best-selling authors who are also known to be uh, hellish, okay, mm. for lack of a better term, but people will come, their editors and agents will complain about them when they're with each other. You know, oh, I, you know, but none of them are willing to lose that person as a client or an author because they overcompensate for their high maintenance qualities. So if you're going to be a high maintenance client or author, you better first demonstrate that you're going to be worth it. Okay. And then the agent and the editor will accept that as part of their uh, cost of business having to put up with you. So what would be an, what's an appropriate, what's an appropriate frequency then to just check in and like, let's say well, you want, checking you in is appropriate, but if you check in every day, mm. you know, you've been told that it's going to be 10 days or it's going to yeah. be, then you will hear from me and yet you're still checking in. Mm. Or if you're making the agent or the editor feel bad about themselves, you know, that's a bad mm. thing. That yeah. just may be a personality defect that mm. that particular writer has in, in their life in general is mm. that they make other yeah. people because of their own insecurities and their own frustration, they have to put some of that on the people they're working with, but that's very undermining. So yeah. if you sense that kind of negativity where the author is going to turn on you mm. because they're not uh, getting what they think they should get. And sometimes the thing is, like I've said before, the ones who are most undermining 
and, and most frustrated are the ones who have actually had the most success because they don't think it's enough. They're, they're mm. so hungry that there's really no feeding them. Now, this yeah. is a small percentage. I'm not saying that this is something that writers, you know, that most writers do. But uh, and I, if a writer is inadvertently being high maintenance and they're doing it inadvertently, then most likely you can educate them and create boundaries and parameters for them that they will understand. It's that they didn't know, okay? They may not be business people. They may have never had to work in an office or in any kind of organization whatsoever, and they just don't really know how to engage themselves. So what you do in that case is once you realize, well, this person is a pain in the neck, but they don't know it, they mean well. You educate them, you kindly, gently tell them, you know, look, this is what, you know, is expected of you at this point. And that's fine, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so if, if we have a, an, an author listening and this person has modest numbers, their platform would not, it's not, we don't even have maybe, we haven't even broken 10,000 subscribers on their list, let's say. So we're talking pretty modest numbers, but they got a great idea. They've got, they've got the writing chops and they really want to see where this might go. Should they not even bother trying to land an agent or are there no. agents who will definitely look at them? And I, uh, over the years, I have represented successfully many books that did not have the so-called platform. What it did have is a subject that had a huge platform separate from the author. An example of that, an easy example was uh, I did a book on Charles Manson, which, which sold about 100,000 copies. The authors did not have any kind of platform uh, whatsoever, but the Charles Manson as a subject for which they had a great deal of new information uh, had a huge platform. So they leveraged that. I had another ex example of a person who had been a fighter pilot in Iraq and had a lot of uh, interesting experiences at a as a fighter pilot. He had no platform himself, but the concept of being a fighter pilot who was also a good writer uh, and had real war stories to tell, uh, that was the platform. So there are many ways to bypass it and piggyback other platforms or to piggyback other individuals. <laughs> yes. Let you use their platform. You understand? So you yes. just have to be creative about that and not look at it as a wall that's pushing you in. All it means is you have to expand the walls so that you can find a way to sell the book. What a great, great ending to this conversation. You got to push those walls back. I love it. Do you have a charge for for the, the person listening in today or even to me? A charge? Yes, yes. <laughs> Send us off with that final. Oh, uh... oh, okay. Yeah, well, the thing to remember is you are your own best advocate and nobody can tell you that you can't write. No one can tell you that you can't be published. Nobody, only you can tell yourself that. So don't let other people tell you what to tell yourself. If it's in your heart and in your gut to really do this, then do it and take all the rejection that they give you, okay? Take as much of it as you can, as you will rather. Take it all because ultimately, if it's still in your heart, you're going to find a way to make it happen. That is great. 
Jeff, thank you for your time today. You have given so much to, to me, to us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me for this conversation with Jeff Herman. Now that he's helped you understand the publishing world just a little bit better, I hope you feel encouraged to take your next steps. I'll include links to his books and his website, along with a few show notes for this episode at annkroker.com slash jeffherman. My name's the trickiest part. It's spelled K-R-O-E-K-E-R. So that's annkroker.com slash jeffherman. I'm Ann Croker cheering you on as a writing coach in your ear, everywhere we may meet, at my website, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, in your inbox, here on this podcast, over at Patreon, or even in person. I'm always looking for ideas to share with you that will help you achieve your writing goals and have fun by being more curious, creative, and productive. Thank you for listening.